Welcome to the Ultimate Deck Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Chapman. This week we're doing something a little bit differently. I had the opportunity to go to a local high school here in Regina, Saskatchewan to have a guest lecture with an entrepreneurship class. And so uh, I spent some time talking with the class about entrepreneurship, how we got into the business, how we started the Ultimate Deck Shop, and uh, kind of our trials and tribulations along the way. So I thought this would make for maybe a good podcast for everybody to have a listen, and I'm sure there'll be questions. So if you do have questions listening to this, please hit us up on Instagram at the Ultimate Deck Shop. Shoot us a message. I hope you enjoy this one. I think this will be a neat format. Yeah, I haven't done one yet this week, and I thought, well, maybe I can just record this and do that. So, okay, I'll make my way up here. Part of running your own business means you're always late. So I appreciate the coffee because I didn't have a chance to stop for one. Um, the reason I've got this mic on is because we actually have a podcast that none of you would be interested in because it's about the decking world. So unless you're a hardcore carpentry nerd, you wouldn't care about it. But uh, I figured maybe this could be a good podcast episode. So if you are interested in listening to this back afterwards for whatever reason, it'll be up online for all 20 people that listen to it to listen to. Okay. I was literally with a customer like 11 minutes ago and I was like, sorry, I gotta go. I forgot I have this thing this morning. Not forgot, but lost track of time, so. Um, so in this room, sorry, I guess I should introduce myself first. Shane Chapman is my name. My primary business these days is called The Ultimate Deck Shop. Has anybody heard of The Ultimate Deck Shop? Great, I've got lots of work to do. So, um, The Ultimate Deck Shop is a lumber yard, essentially, but we only deal in deck supplies. So you all know what a deck is. Not a skateboard deck or a deck of cards, but a deck in the back of your house. That's what we do. We sell everything you need for your deck, the framing, the decking, the railing, lights, the little pergola structures to go over top, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's all we do. We don't do windows and doors and insulation like a traditional lumberyard because we want to be specialized in what we do so that we can do it better than everybody else. Um, Mike referenced Fresh Decks, which was my old company, which is what I did before I started the deck shop. Um, that company was a deck builder, and so I used to spend quite a few years building decks. I had a day job at Sastel, Monday to Friday, and then on the evenings and weekends, I would go out and build decks for people because I just enjoyed the carpentry side of things. I had no idea I even had any interest in carpentry in high school. That was not a thing for me. I, I don't know where it came from. I just. At one point in my life, I had the opportunity to build a deck and enjoyed it and decided I was going to continue to build decks. And then now I make my living off of building decks and not building them anymore personally, but helping other people build their decks. So that's how I got to where I am. So Fresh Decks is kind of on hold or not operating right now because I'm not out building anymore because the store is so busy, I need to be there. Um, but along the way, I've done a lot of different things. Um, this isn't my first business, but it's my first full-time business. But even from the time I graduated high school and went to the U of R, which I did, um, I was always dabbling in something. I always had like, I think at one point we were doing like a little bit of web hosting, a little company doing web hosting. I had started a, like a Rough Rider fan website at one point, did that for a while, um, a tool discussion website. Like I always had something on the go because I enjoyed like creating. And so that fulfilled that need for me. 
Um, but that's not the path I took out of high school. I didn't know in high school that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't even, I don't even know if that was even a word that I used much back then or understood the, what it even meant. My path was I'm going to go to the university and figure out what I want to do from there on because all I knew that I liked in high school was basketball. Um, so I thought, well, I'll go to high university and, and do something with sports. So I enrolled in kinesiology and health science and thought maybe I'll be like, I don't know, a basketball coach someday or something in that. Took about six months, one semester to realize that wasn't for me. That's not what I wanted to do. But I really started to realize that I was uh, gravitating towards kind of like graphic design and advertising and stuff. I was noticing like billboards and thinking like, that's neat. How could that look better? And I was realizing I was kind of interested in the business world a little bit. So I transitioned to a business admin degree. That's what I ended up getting for a degree years later with a specialty in marketing. Um, when I say years, I think it was like, if I count on fingers from start to finish, I think I was at U of R for almost like eight years, nine years, on and off working and had a kid in there somewhere and whatnot. But um, that was kind of my path to kind of coming out of high school was to not know that I was you know, like gonna be an entrepreneur, but going on the corporate path. Ended up at SaskTel in marketing, which is what I thought I wanted to do. Um, did that for five years before I decided to quit and start the ultimate deck shop. Um, the reason I asked if anybody's heard of us, you're not exactly our target demographic, none of you own homes and build decks right now, but who knows, maybe in a few years you will be. Uh, but I always have this kind of internal struggle about, in spite of all the advertising that we do, how many people actually know who we are? And I, I have a business partner, I talk this about him to him all the time. We, you know, off the top of our head, if we weren't put to, to think about it too much, we both would say like probably three or four people out of 10 would know who we are. But when I actually sit down and think about it and think about my experience talking to people like you or just, you know, meeting people on the street that ask, not on the street, but like at a hairdresser or something, if they ask, what do you do? And I say, oh, we own the Ultimate Deck Shop. Nobody's heard of it. And we're in year four now. And so I think that number is probably closer to like 10%. So that was a quick little poll to see if like even one out of what, 20 of you have even sort of heard of it. But how many people in this room know that they're an entrepreneur right now and that's the path that they're going to explore once they're done school? How many people know what they're going to do? It's not entrepreneurship, but you're going to be a, whatever, a teacher, or a mechanic, or a farmer. Most of you. And for the ones that don't, you're just kind of not sure yet, still figuring it out. Now it only takes 15 years in my experience. <laughs> so I'm kidding. Um, that was part of my, I guess, exploration through university is figuring out what I wanted to do. And I switched careers hard at... I just turned 38 and I've been doing this store for four years. So I guess at 34, I decided to change it up and, and quit my job and go out in the real world and make a go of it. So the reason why that happened is because I was always, like I said, I always had this burning desire to get out and create something on my own. That's why I built Dex when I was still working at Sastel. Um, I feel like I established a pretty good kind of brand and reputation for what I was doing on the side. Uh, but I had some frustrations with that with as a builder in the materials and the help and stuff that were being provided from the existing stores in town that offered deck materials and stuff at that time. And, and we just, I just felt it could be done better. Uh, and so that's really the start of how this all came to be. I spent probably the first 14 years wanting to do something on my own and having no idea what that was gonna be. Like if I was gonna quit my job and be an entrepreneur, what would it be? Like I'm not a car guy, I'm not gonna be a mechanic. You know, like I, I didn't know what my passion was gonna be until I started building decks and then figured it out that way. But um, four years ago, three and a half years ago, I had kind of gotten fed up with 
not being able to source the products that I wanted to use when I was building decks and nobody was really willing to help. And so over supper one night with my now business partner, I was venting this to him because he was also a contractor, not in the decking world, but uh, building kitchens and whatnot, and said, this is frustrating. Like, I want to get these products that I'm seeing in these magazines and whatnot. Nobody's willing to bring it in for me. Everybody has an excuse as to why they can't bring it in for me. I don't see why I couldn't bring it in. Like, I should just start a store online probably and sell the things that I'm trying to get that nobody else is willing to get because there's like there's got to be more people like me that want it and so that was the start of something that was like that was this early idea of like hey yeah that's not a bad idea maybe we should do something like that and then we left that supper two weeks later my friend Wade called me he's like maybe we should explore this a bit more like he's always wanted to kind of go out and get into business he'd kind of poking me to quit Sastel and do something with him for a while and so now all of a sudden we had our idea and so two weeks later he called me and says let's Let's do this. And I said, okay, if we're going to do it, I think we need to go all in. It can't just be an online store selling screws. We need to have everything somebody would need for their deck. Because I don't, people don't want to go to six different places to get the things they need to do one thing. So if we're going to do this, we have to be a full lumberyard. It's not just a little shop with some screws on the shelf. It's a full lumberyard. So the first thing we did was we booked a, a booth at the home show for the spring. And this is about November. The spring show was in March. But that gave us a hard deadline that we knew we had to be ready for. Um, and we had to put down whatever it was, $2,000 to book the booth. So if we didn't do this, we were going to be out 2000 bucks and whatever else, right? So we decided that that was going to be our first step was to book that booth because that gave us a hard date that we had to get ready for. And then it was literally, okay, we're doing this, all eyes forward. Like the decision's been made. I'm quitting my job. You're quitting your job. We've got four months. Let's do this. And I kept working at Sastel until uh, about three or four weeks before the store actually opened for business. So it was, we were doing everything kind of like after hours, evenings and weekends again. So that's kind of the path on how I got to where I am today. The Ultimate Deck Shop now is doing great. Um, when we opened, we pissed a lot of people off uh, because there was a lot of lumberyards in town that had operated just the three or four of them for years, for 30 years probably and nobody had really opened up in that time to take business from them. And it wasn't that we were opening intentionally to take business for them, we were just trying to do our own thing and do it better, and we saw that there was an opportunity. But we made a lot of people mad because we disrupted an industry that was pretty comfy at that time. Um, so now we're about three years in and everybody's kind of calmed down, and we're all, like, we're all competing, but we're all friendly. Uh, and we've grown year over year to the point now where, and we've moved locations in those three years, to the point where we feel that we have a legitimate business now. It doesn't feel like it's ad hoc thrown together, you know, working out of a closet. We have a, a real business now. Um, it took a few years. When we opened the store in 2015, uh, no, sorry, probably 16, um, April of 2016, we opened with next to nothing. We leased a small little building that was Honestly, the shop was about the size of this classroom. We had a tiny little compound for storing lumber in that was the size of probably most of your backyards. Um, we really tried to make that work up front because we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't know if this thing was going to work for sure or not. So we just kind of started small and decided we were going to bootstrap it, which is to not invest a bunch of money up front. It's to kind of like sell, reinvest, sell, reinvest, sell, reinvest, and grow the things that way. So that's what we've done. So the very first year, we had essentially no money to really put into this thing. I think we pooled together about $5,000 between the two of us, uh, which is not enough to buy inventory of anything really, but it was enough to kind of scab together some semblance of a showroom. 
And uh, we did that home show the first year. It went great. We were busy. We were slammed for four days straight in this tiny little booth, just Wade and I. And that first home show was like, you know what? There might be something here. Like, even though we have a booth that's kind of in the corner, not great exposure, like we're busy. People are really curious about what we're doing here. And the very first day we opened our doors, at that home show, we actually weren't open yet because we were still trying to drywall and put the space together. We opened about a week and a half later, I think. And uh, the very first day at 10 o'clock, somebody rolled in and bought a deck from us for $12,000. And it didn't even make sense because the place was not finished. We didn't even let it really go beyond the front door because there was drywall dust and all sorts of crap in the back. We had a cardboard box at the front that we had our debit machine on that we got the day before. Like it was just very not ready, but at the same time, somebody came in and bought something from us. And we're like, okay, let's, here we go. Um, but it takes a lot of risk, obviously, to get to that point. Um, we really kind of put ourselves out there. I had quit my job. I had a good job. I was making probably close to about $70,000 a year at Sastel. Um, I had all the benefits and pension that you could ever want in a job there. It was safe. I could have worked there for the next 40 years and retired and uh, had no worries in life, been comfortable, but that's not what I wanted to do. So quitting that was a big risk because when you go and start your own business, there's no guarantee of anything. Like we didn't make money for the first year, obviously. I kept building with fresh decks to make sure that we had some income happening and that I was buying materials through the store. But we didn't know how many customers would come. It could have been five, it could have been 50, it could have been 500, we had no idea. Everything was a guess at that point. Thankfully, it went well, so we do have inventory now. That first year when that lady bought, we had nothing in the store, she paid for everything, then we ordered it, then we delivered it to her. Um, and that's how that worked mostly for the first year. Second year, we added a little bit of inventory. Third year, we added a little bit of inventory. And now we're sitting on, we've probably got about a million and a half dollars worth of inventory sitting on the ground today. We started at zero three years ago. Um, so it's grown fast, but it's going good. The biggest thing that I would stress, and I've, I think I stress this every time I talk about this, is growing your network of people because we couldn't have done this if we hadn't put it out that we, were, that we were doing this and got help from other people and kind of becoming um, part of the industry because there's a ton of people out there in every industry that are willing to help you along your way. <coughs> and I know that up front it's scary. If I would have sat back three and a half years ago and thought that I wanted to start the store and have it look day one like my vision, then it just would have never happened because it would be too overwhelming and I couldn't even understand how we could get there with no money. But you just have to kind of start small and then grow it and eventually you'll kind of get to where you need to be. And I feel like I'm halfway there going into year four. So it's not quite the vision yet, but it's, it's good. Uh, but along the way, there's been so many people that have helped and I, I was thinking about this on the way over there, way over here. Along the way, how many people I've had made connections with now that have helped us, even whether it's just bouncing ideas off somebody or um, it's like you never really had a whole lot of financial help, but there's people that are willing to help you in different ways along the way that help you kind of to realize your goals and dreams, whatever. Uh, and I was thinking about the story that I pulled off a couple weeks ago on my birthday. So, are you guys on Facebook, or is that like is that old news now for you guys? Most people are on Facebook. So. Every year at your birthday, you get a whole bunch of messages from people. Your Facebook blows up with 200 people that are like, happy birthday. And you haven't actually talked to them since your last birthday. Like they only ever talk to you to say happy birthday once a year. And I thought, this is funny. This happens every year. These people I don't ever talk to say happy birthday. And I decided, because I was bored, it was still slow at the store. Spring hadn't struck yet, I guess. I decided I was going to like engage every one of them in a conversation. It wasn't just going to be like, thanks. It was going to be like, 
thanks, how are things? How's things with your, whatever, with your wife? Or like, how was your job? And so I did this and then regretted it about four hours later when I had about 85 conversations now going, consuming my time. But from that, Mike's probably seen me post about the fact that I'm working with, or part of a, a program advisory committee with SIAS now, with SAS Polytechnic. That came from that. Like this goofy little thing that I thought was just kind of fun, and like honestly, I was probably sitting on the crapper half the time having these conversations, right? Just like finding any, every last, because they all do it. Everybody, <laughs> these guys did it just before class. <laughs> Up from that, because I, there was a guy who I knew that worked at SIAS, at SAS Polytech, he said happy birthday. I used to work with him at SAS 12 years ago. I decided to say to him, how's things? How's SIAS? How's it going? Whatever. Oh, good. Blah, blah, blah. We got into the fact that sometimes I do these high school chats. And so he sent me a message outside of that, sent me a text. was like, hey, are you interested in doing that kind of stuff with SIAS? And I said, sure, I am. Like, I love going in front of classes and talking about entrepreneurship and whatnot. Things kind of tumble forward, and now I'm, he reached out and he's like, you know what, I think you'd be a good fit for the program advisory committee, actually, which is a committee of people that kind of um, molds the curriculum for the business diploma program at SAS Polytech. So just provides feedback and input from our real world experience to make sure that the programs are staying relevant. So that happened out of me saying, deciding that I wasn't just gonna let him get away with saying happy birthday, and I wanted to engage him in a conversation. So the point of that is, if you just talk to people about what you wanna do, there's people out there that can help you get somewhere. Like I, I for a couple of years, I thought I'd love to go to SAS Polytech and actually do these chats at, at SIAS too but never really pushed or explored it. And all it took was me to ask one guy who worked there how, his, how things were going there, and then that happened from that. So it's really about uh, reaching out to your network. If you guys plan on going to university, there's gonna be some clubs and whatnot involved that kind of um, interact with the business community. So I know at the U of R and the business um, faculty, they have like suppers and whatnot with the business community. So you can, as part of the business faculty, you can go and, and go to these suppers where you get to network and mingle with people in the real business community. Well, like do that. I never did, thinking at that time that it wasn't important or that I didn't want to go network. But just knowing somebody can open up a lot of doors for you. So very important to do that. Um, does anybody have any questions about my specific journey from SASTAL to here? Yeah. Well, what made you realize you could be a great entrepreneur? Uh, I don't know that anything made me realize that I could be, and like I think I'm starting to realize now that we're doing things right. Uh, so just the other day I was driving with my wife, and we drove by the, I can't remember what it was, there was some little shop on Broad Street in this little tiny house and it had a, like a sale sign on it or a lease sign. I was like, that business clearly didn't make it. And so I told her, I'm like, there's statistics out there that say 95% of businesses that start will fail within the first five years. And that's a scary st statistic, right? Like that's, your odds are stacked heavily against you if you decide to start your own business. But in my opinion, 90% of those should have never went into business in the first place. It was a bad idea, it wasn't the right people, they didn't know how to execute it. They weren't actual entrepreneurs. Like there's a variety of reasons why something might start. And from my own, from my, like I've contributed to that statistic. I've started a bunch of little businesses on along the way that I had no intention of ever making a full-time business. <coughs> they were just a hobby. And so at some point those stopped, not because I couldn't make it work, but because I didn't want to do it full-time. Well, that gets chalked into that statistic. So that becomes one of the 95 that failed. So I think if you, if you have the desire to do something on your own, you're the type of person that sees a problem and solves it, that 5% number is probably a lot more like 70% for you. Because it's all about like solving problems and figuring things out every day. 
So it's not as uh, doom and gloom as it sounds if you look at Statistics Canada on how many businesses fail. I think that's a scary stat. But So I don't know how I knew. I just knew that I was creative. I think that helps a lot. I had a creative mind. I like to build things, whether it's a deck or a business or a poster or whatever. I just like creating. Um, it takes a while. Like when we started the store, I didn't know that it would be successful. I didn't know that we, like I felt I was probably in a you know, good state of mind to make a business work, but you just, you never know until you prove it out. The fact that we've had now three years of continuous growth, moved into spaces, grown, 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 gives me confidence that we know what we're doing a little bit, but there's there's still a lot that we're working on too. So I don't know that there's ever a time where it's like, oh, yep, I know I'm, I know I'm an entrepreneur now. It's just, you gotta, it's a lot of trial and error, I think. Does that answer that? Yeah, okay. sure. thank you. Any other questions? Yeah. Why did you choose to do decks? I mean, you could have done like anything else. Like, you could have done like in-home renovations or like you chose decks. Why? Uh, that's a good question. So the first thing I ever, the first project that I remember specifically doing was uh, my mother moved to Regina in 2001 and she needed to replace a deck on the house that she bought and she was getting some quotes and it was expensive and she was my parents had divorced a couple years earlier she wasn't she wasn't swimming in money by any means and I thought well you know what we can maybe we can tackle this and my friend maybe not ironically was Wade at the time still but the guy I'm in business with now he had done some carpentry and he was living with me at the time we were roommates and he's like I think we could we could probably build this ourselves with your mom and I thought okay well with his help he knows a little bit about what he's doing I can figure this out and so we built our first deck and it was just fun I did do some interior renovations for a while when I started fresh decks it was originally called fresh construction and we did decks and fences and interior remodel type of stuff <coughs> for whatever reason I don't know the answer but for whatever reason I just didn't enjoy the interior stuff like I would get inside you know, I would drywall a wall and it would do nothing for me and I'd paint wall and replace the flooring and at the end I was like yeah okay on to the next one but being outside maybe part of it was being outside working in the summer like that's a good time you know what I mean going out there and grabbing a big slurpee bigger than you should consume and it's, you know it's 30 degrees outside and you're like it's it's nice it's a nice work environment it's better than sitting in an office right maybe that's part of it but I just enjoyed that part more so I eventually stopped doing the interior renovations and I started focusing just on decks and fences and then I realized that the fences weren't doing anything for me either a fence is a fence is a fence there's no creativity behind a fence. It's just posts and fence boards. But the deck, there's an opportunity to actually do something creative with. It doesn't have to be just a square shape, right? It can, you can really kind of play around and get creative with it. So I think I enjoyed that part. It tapped into my creative uh, element that I wanted to explore. So I, I don't know, it's a weird thing, right? So like, I know not everybody's passionate about deck boards. <laughs> it's like, it's not super fun for most people, but for whatever reason, I really enjoyed it. So. Everybody's passions are going to be different, but I think that's, if you, if you want to start a business, do it around something that you're passionate about. Because if you don't, then it's just a job. It's just work, if you don't enjoy what you're doing. But because I enjoy decking, I enjoy helping other people, I enjoy the designing process, which I still get to do now, um, it's still fun for me all the time. So for you, that might be something else. Mike's start rate supplies is very tied into his day job, which obviously you're passionate about because you decided to become a teacher. So um, that's an easy transition. If he was doing, if he decided his side gig was gonna be like, uh, like garbage pickup or something, and it was just to make extra money, like after a year or two, the money would be fine. They'd be like, you know what? I'd have a lot better time if I was just home with my family, not out dumping garbage bins. But because he's passionate about it, you have fun at the same time. There's some assumptions there. Maybe you hate doing it. No, it's fun. <laughs> I think 
was it? Too, like you're friends with Wade. Yeah. The people I run my business with, I'm friends and we have a good time doing it. Yeah, and that can be risky too, right? That can ruin some friendships. Thankfully, Wade and I get along really well. Where did I leave? I've made my coffee and I left it. <laughs> Thanks. But you're sitting there going like, what a... Uh, so I decided to go into business with friends. I know that doesn't always work out. Um, but I had told my wife when I was still at Sastel that... And I've been wanting to quit for probably three years before I actually did it. But I always told her, I was like, there's two guys that I'm friends with that if either one of those guys comes calling and says, let's do this, I'm like, I'll go into business with one of them. And one of them was Wade. So when he came and the other guy actually was also at Sastel, also quit, started his own business, doing great as well. He's now a customer of ours because he buys decking from us. Um, so having like the biggest thing about having a partner, because I know earlier when I was just wanting to be an entrepreneur, I had no idea what I wanted to do. The idea of having a partner was like not attractive to me because I want I want to own it. I want if I was like if I'm going to do something, I want to own 100 percent and maybe in complete control of it. But the reality of the situation is some businesses need more than one person to to roll with that. So I don't think that neither Wade or I could have done this by ourselves. It's a very large. You know, capital-intensive business. When you start growing to this point, we have by the summer we'll have about ten employees. So it's it's helpful to to be able to split the responsibilities. And thankfully, I'm more on the creative side. Wade's more on the kind of operational side. So we're able to kind of do the tasks that we want because he <coughs> he enjoys more like running the lumberyard and doing the ordering and stuff like that. Whereas I enjoy more of the marketing and the social media and recording podcasts and stuff. So. Any other questions? Nobody has any other questions that I want to ask? Yeah. You said you had up to 10 employees. So as HR, I was just wondering how uh, you make sure you have the right amount of people in certain departments. Like, uh, like we're still learning that right now ourselves because Every, we don't know, if, it's a tricky business to be in because you're so dependent on what the economy is doing. So you can only forecast, only so much is in your control. I can advertise like crazy, but if the economy is down and nobody's building houses and nobody has money to build decks, then that's out of our control. So every year it's a little bit of a, a feel out process. I feel like this year is the first time I feel confident going into the summer with how many people I need to have in different spots. And so uh, every, every other year it's been very ad hoc. It's like, holy crap, we're slammed. You guys need more help? Okay, post a job. First guy that walks in here's got a job. Like it's literally happened like that over and over again. This year we sat down, created ourselves a bit of an, almost an org chart and said, here's what we need. We need you know four people in the, in the yard picking orders so that when two people are going doing a delivery, the other two can be picking the next order. We need two guys in the warehouse, two people in the warehouse, you know, keeping that organized, doing inventory, that kind of thing. And we need, so Wade and I are still very, like we're in the business. We're not, uh, we're not working on the business, we're working in the business. Him and I are two of the salespeople. We got a third guy who used to work with me on, with Fresh Decks that has come over and he's kind of our store manager now. So the three of us handle sales. What we realized last year was that sometimes there's seven people in the store and there's only three of us and those other four that we're not currently helping are standing around waiting and so we're trying to do things that a speed up the amount of time that we take with the customer B make sure that the people that are waiting are don't realize they're waiting like distract them with things 
whether it's some stuff that's on the walls, like you know, TV promo stuff they can watch, or a coffee station, or whatever, like just entertain them so it doesn't feel like such a long wait. Um, we put like a little tiny like kids zone in the in the one spot in the sh uh, store this year to make sure that kids had a place to just like go be on the iPad. Don't frustrate your parents and make them want to leave, right? Um, but the other thing that happens is that the phone rings nonstop all day, and that pulls one of us away from our people all the time to answer the phone. So we thought this year's the year we probably need a receptionist. Um, so she starts next week. So we realized that we had two options. We could add a salesperson, which could help with sales, but then you still have somebody being pulled away. Um, and sales would have a, like a larger responsibility, We and it's probably a higher paying role, or we thought we could get like an administrative assistant who could do like sole responsibility is to answer the phones and greet people when they come in. If somebody's waiting, try to help them out, get them a coffee, that kind of thing, right? Um, so I feel like we've got a good mix now. It's still gonna be a bit malleable. Like if we get into the middle of summer and things are busier than we expect, then we'll have to add somebody. But we've got a good mix of having Wade, myself, about three permanent employees that are employed all year round, and then we infill the summer with summer students. Because uh, it works really well for us. Our busiest time is exactly when post-secondary students are off for summer looking for a job. So for us, it makes sense to load up on college students for four months, and then at the end of the four months, they have to go anyway, so we don't feel bad about having to let them go. So it works. So it's always it's always a feel-up process for us because it's so seasonal, right? If we were if we were a grocery store, that's easier because people buy groceries every week all year long. But us, very seasonal. So I think somebody else had their hand up at the same time. Moved on to a snack. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's that's got to be infinitely more satisfying anyway, but no, that's fine. <laughs> I should do a question now. Sure. It's more of a business side of things. Mm -hmm. How do you set prices for your products? Holy smokes, you guys have good questions. Uh, I don't know. Let me know when you figure it out. <laughs> so there's a variety of things to consider when you're doing that. One being like you need to attain a certain margin just to run your business. You have to be able to make so many percent point, percentage points of, of margin over top of your cost to actually pay your bills, pay your employees, pay for the cost of goods sold, pay for your rent, pay for everything. Um, so you need to figure that number out, but you've also got to be very aware of what everybody else is charging for the same thing because you can't be way out of line with what, like we compete with Home Depot and Lowe's and you know, Free Solomon Co-op, like we're competing with local lumberyards and box stores. And so we need to be very aware of what they're also doing. So the way we kind of do it is to set all our prices based on a margin that we need to attain and then price check and see if it's out of line. And if it's out of line, if we have to adjust, we'll either adjust down to what we need to be at and be okay with the fact that we're making a little bit less margin on that item, knowing that nobody's gonna buy that alone, they're gonna buy that along with a bunch of other things, or choose not to carry that item. If we really can't make money at it, then there's no point in having it there. Because um, there's a cost, not only the cost, like if you buy something for $10 and you sell it for 14, uh, it's not like you're not getting $4 of profit. Somebody has to pick that thing up, put it in a box, ship it somewhere. You know, like there's a lot of kind of overhead and operational costs associated with that too. So you gotta make sure you have that all covered. It's it, like, it's a work in progress for, for certain. Every winter we sit down, we reprice pretty much everything. Because the other tricky thing is that in this industry, prices change all the time for us. So some things stay, stay fairly stable, um, but things like lumber, which we sell a lot of lumber, can change every two weeks. So we need to be constantly aware of price changes that are coming in so make sure that we're not, one week we might sell something at $14 and make 
what we need to on, the, on it. And then if we don't notice that the cost of that went up to $13 and we're still, still selling it at 14, like we're losing money at that point. There's a dollar there, but that dollar is not paying for all the stuff we got to pay for. So it's tricky. It's, it's figuring out your costs of doing business, um, all of your overhead, making sure you have a profit in there and then, and then kind of like overseeing all that with a competitive eye and making sure that you have that people are still going to shop with you. Thankfully, like we have a fair bit of buying power now. Like we move, we sell quite a bit of stuff compared to like we're not small by any means. We sell as much railing, aluminum railing, if not more, uh, actually more aluminum railing than Rona does. So we've got quite a bit of buying power now. Um, so being competitive with our pricing is not a problem. Um, one of the first things we did when we opened the store was join the buying group to help us initially when we weren't buying volumes of things. And what a buying group is is it's a it's a a club, essentially, of a bunch of small lumberyards that pool their buying together to make sure they get a better price. So for, you know, if there's a lumberyard in Radville, Saskatchewan that, you know, does X number of business, he can't compete against Home Depot. But if he does his buying as a cooperative with 300 other lumberyards across Canada, now they've got some buying power. So we joined a group like that right away so that we could take advantage of the bigger buying power. Um, and now we've gotten to the point now where we probably like we're still in that group and we'll continue to be in the group but we would have some buying power on ourselves whether we were in that group or not but so it's tricky we discovered over the winter last year that that happened to us on two different products two different deck boards that the price had gone up and we didn't catch it and so we were selling these deck boards at too low of a margin and they were unfortunately two of our best selling deck boards so a significant portion of our revenue was being sold on a margin that wasn't sustainable for us so now we have a bookkeeper and she keeps an eye on things that are coming in to make sure that if there's a price change she flags it and we can adjust our price accordingly yeah. we also do like we we do a price beat guarantee like um, if somebody brings in an estimate from somewhere else or a flyer, we'll beat the price no matter what. Uh, so that just gives people confidence that we do have a, a, a good price to begin with. Because what people assume is that there's no way that our little store can be competitive with Home Depot. Like that's just what 99% of people would assume. But in reality, we're actually cheaper than Home Depot on majority of our prod products unless they're on sale. If they have a big sale, they may be lower or they may be at the same price as us. But the box stores are never as cheap as everybody thinks. So. Any other questions? That's great, thank you. You bet, thanks for the question. Coffee's delicious, by the way. <clears throat> hey, I know you guys all have questions. Don't be afraid to ask. This is the fun part, so ask away. There's no stupid questions unless I tell you it's stupid, and then. What's the best way you can track your finances, in your opinion? Uh, what do you mean by that exactly? Like, just I'm having a vice president of finance for a company, and I just okay. want ideas on how to keep track of our like expenses and everything. Better. Yeah, so that like that's not my forte. I don't want to see that, but we have accountants that have kind of like a general overseeing eye and do all of our books for us. And I think that's probably a good lesson there. If you don't feel like you're strong at something, don't either. You got two options: either get strong in it, figure it out so that you can do it yourself, or hire somebody who is. Because if you're bad at it, it's it'll be really bad for you. Yeah. I don't have the time nor the care to 
want to do finances. It's not my thing. I don't care. Like, obviously, I'm, I'm a big fan of checking my reports and seeing, like, oh, we're doing this well every month, but I don't want to be the guy punching in receipts and spending all my time on a computer calculating my GST there in E-Termit. Like, that's not my thing. So we, from day one, we've had accountants that do our, do our books for us, and then we've, last year, we brought in a bookkeeper to, be, to kind of oversee that as well. Uh, we use an accounting program called Sage, so QuickBooks is probably a bigger one that you've likely heard of that does most of the calculations and stuff for you. It's mostly ma like manually inputting your information into that. And so for someone like me, what I want is just to be able to go in there and generate a, re a report and see how much revenue had this month, what our cost of goods sold was, what our wages were that month. Like I just want to see the high level stuff. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but definitely like yeah, no. be the accountant or have an accountant, uh, be the bookkeeper or have a bookkeeper. And like use a use a software for it for sure. Unless it's a small operation, if you're selling Etsy candles at trade shows three times a year, you can probably do that manually. But when you're dealing with you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and micro transactions, ours aren't micro, but a lot of transactions, then you need to have something automating it for you and somebody who's dedicated to keeping their eye on it. Because our lack of our lack of not having a bookkeeper, to my point before, it cost us because. Prices went up, we didn't catch all of them, and so then we sold a bunch of stuff at not very much money. So, the right people. Thank you. Yeah. Any more? Yeah. Um, how do you get people interested in a business that wouldn't normally be interested in? How do you kind of market to everybody? Like from a, to attract employees, you mean? Or? So we are in a very beneficial time that there's been a spin-off from all the HGTV shows that are out there. So I don't know if you guys are watching that stuff, um, but there's DIY Network and HGTV that are pumping out these shows about creating cool, out like fun outdoor living spaces. Um, so that's resulted in a lot of people that want to spend more money outside than they had than they did maybe 10 years ago. Right? Before, if people thought about a renovation and they had $10,000 or $20,000, they thought, let's do the bathroom, or let's redo the kitchen. But now, people are actually looking outside and being like, let's, do, let's build a kick-ass deck. Because our summers are short. You know, you've got, you got four months of real like, summer weather. You have a few more months of like, spring and fall weather that you can still be outside. So at best, on a good year, you can spend seven or eight months outside on your deck. And so people are wanting to make the most of it. Uh, and a deck doesn't just have to be a square deck anymore. It can have an outdoor kitchen. It can have a fireplace on it. It can be a, you know, a social gathering place. Um, things like smoking, not, not smoking, but smoking food. Smokers, people are getting into that trend. Um, you know, everybody wants to be outside. So for us, it's not, we don't really have to spend too much time convincing people they need to have a deck. Um, because it, a lot of that's been done for us and it's trendy right now to want to spend money on your outdoor space. But what we need to do is convince people to spend it at our store versus somewhere else because a lot of them haven't heard of us or they don't know the benefits of shopping at us versus a lumberyard or whatever. So, um, yeah, we're just we're in a beneficial time right now where people want to spend money. So, like, our average transaction, I don't know what it was last year. I haven't calculated that yet. But people are spending, like, it's not uncommon for... Projects to go that are twenty thousand dollars, forty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars for a deck. So people are willing to spend the money nowadays. There's obviously uh, all kinds. There's all budgets. Some people spend fifteen hundred dollars on a deck, and other people spend one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a deck. But 
Um, all we need to, we, we're convinced that all we need to is get people in the doors of the store and then they'll see the value of being there. So that's my job, is to try to get people just to be aware of us. So, that answer that? Any more? few more minutes so if you have another question or we can if you guys want to tell Shane about what your business is going to be and see if maybe he can be uh bounce some ideas off you guys if you guys want to talk about your business sure um so is this more for my business okay my business what do you believe is the best way for us to reach our audience What's your what's your business? What's your product or your business? Uh, yeah, so give, give Artem, you're talking first. All of you, tell Shane what our product is. Uh, so we're a clothing company. Okay. Raymond Clothing. Okay. Uh, so our design. I don't know which spot you were pointing at there, but right there. Uh, I assume, yeah, there's a lot of Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're a clothing company, and we'll use old English as a part of our designs. Okay. So our, logo, our, our name means clothing in old English. Okay. How does that fit in? Like, why old English? Because you guys pick. What does Raymond 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 mean? Raymond means uh, clothing in old English. <laughs> so who are you like? Who's who are you thinking is going to be buying that? Are you trying to attract people that that? Are following Shakespeare? Are you trying to like almost create a new trend that for young people that like want to have something see trendy again? Yeah, we want to make uh, a new trend for younger people. that will see it and be like, "Wow, this is nice. Like, this is unique. Okay, this is what we want to have." Okay, so everybody here is on Facebook. Yeah, Snapchat. Yeah. What else? What am I missing? Instagram. Instagram, of course. Instagram. Any other ones? Is there any up and comers I don't know about? Is Snapchat still cool or is that fading? Just like it's up there. It's above Instagram. Yeah. Judging by how often they're on it in my class. Nobody texts anymore, okay? Texting's so old school. You should do a texting shirt. Um, so if your audience is young people, then that's where they are, right? Uh, you've got probably you've probably got a couple distribution models, but nowadays like t-shirt businesses are kicking ass online. And so you've got the option of selling direct to consumer. So if she wants to buy one of your shirts, you've got two options to get it to her. You can sell it directly to her, which means you have to have a platform for her to do that on, which would be online. That's the easiest way to get to her. Or you have to sell it through traditional retail, uh, which is getting slaughtered right now. So depends on the industry you're in, but t-shirts is one where, like I don't know what the stats are in the clothing business, but I know for a fact that people aren't buying clothes through a traditional store as often anymore as they are online. Uh, and another, the other thing about that is that if you sell something directly to her, you keep all the margin. If you sell it to a retail store first and then they sell it to her, you've got to share your margin with that retail store, right? So your options are maybe to make 80% margin on your t-shirt sale if you sell it directly to her or to make 30% on it because you have to give 50 to the other guy. Um, it's also, very difficult in the clothing world to get into a retail store to begin with. So you almost have to establish a brand that people want before a store will take it, if that makes sense. Um, which is in the marketing world termed as like a pull through strategy. So you market to the end consumer, have them go to the store and be like, hey, I want Raymond, is that what he said? I, I want Raymond, I want some Raymond clothing. And the retailer says, 
never heard of it, don't know what it is. But if they get asked that 100 times, then they start looking and being like, okay, we guess we better get this stuff on. But that's expensive to do, to get people to actually want your product with it not being in market anywhere yet. So probably I think your best strategy would be to go online, obviously have a website, sell direct, and then catch people's attention where it is. So on Snapchat, on Instagram. Um, clothing is, is a industry that's very ripe for using like influencers. So on Instagram, if you were to go out there and say, hey, um, even in Regina, there's a lot of fashion bloggers on Instagram. Wade's wife actually does this, this exact same thing. You could reach out to them and say, hey, I've got this cool new, whatever, torn tee withholding, whatever it is. I'd like to send you one. Can I send you some product in return for posting about it? And if they say yes, and you know, one out of 20 might say yes, the other 19 might say no, but if you get one out of 20, you've given them a t-shirt that costs you, what, $11 maybe? They post about it and 20,000 people see it. And so for $11, you've captured the attention of 20,000 people just by using one influencer. Um, $11 doesn't buy you one second on the radio. It doesn't buy you anything on TV. Doesn't buy any billboards, doesn't buy any print, doesn't buy anything. $11 is best spent on giving a product away to somebody who can give you exposure or to use Facebook ads or Instagram ads where $11 actually can get you some value. But traditional media on that is, would be a, like a, I think a waste of time for trying to build a brand through traditional media would be insanely expensive. That makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. That gave me some ideas. Yeah. So we're using social media quite a bit, which is not normal for our uh, <laughs> industry. Our industry is generally run by 60-year-old men. Like, that's who owns lumber yards. Or giant corporations like Home Depot and all, which obviously do a lot better on social media and, and online than local lumberyards do. But uh, we, being middle-aged now, I think I've referred myself as, uh, I understand the value of... You know, I, like I've got a big Instagram account and I know that it works. Um, so I've got 22,000 people that follow me personally that I, can, that I can talk to at any given time. If I have a product that I think is great that people will like, I can put it out there to 22,000 people. Our store account, account has 12.7 thousand people following it. So with one post, I can, not all of them are going to see it and not all of them are here, but that costs me nothing. I can make a post and do that and have people's attention for zero dollars. And if I need to expand that reach a little bit, I can throw like $100 at it and expand my reach by quite a bit. Um, I spent $30,000 on radio last year, and I have no idea if anybody bought a deck for me because of it. So I'm not this year. <laughs> so $30,000 back into my pocket to do something else with. So, yeah. Yeah, I'll ask you first. He's been so quiet the whole time. Let's give him a shot. Uh, how do you think, let's go like up and going. How can we gain customer loyalty? Same brand? Yeah. Oh boy, that's a tough one with t-shirt brand. Obviously, like clothing is very, 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 very competitive. Anybody can literally start a t-shirt brand tomorrow if they want to. <coughs> You're competing with me because I started one <laughs> in the midst of, uh, and it's a passion, entrepreneurship. Um, Customer loyalty is earned. That's not something you can generate overnight. What you need to do is like, first you need your audience that actually wants to buy your product, and then you need to sell them something, and then you need to have that experience be so enjoyable that they want to do it again with you. So that, like, there's a variety of things. The ordering process has to be easy. Um, it has to be efficient, it has to get to them fast. 
uh, and when it gets there, it better fit right and feel good and make them feel a certain way about it. Um, and then they'll have brand loyalty. This nice thing about clothing is that people are very brand loyal. So if you ever get it, if you ever achieve that brand loyalty, they'll keep coming back unless you do something to lose it. Um, but it's hard to it's hard to pry them away from things that they already let want to spend their money on. We got a fresh. 22 hoodie right here. Um, if he has the choice to buy another fresh 22 hoodie or Ramon, Ramon? Why can I not say that, Ramon? He's probably gonna buy the fresh one because he's already got that loyalty to that. It means something to him. It's a local company, it's athletic, it's streetwear. Um, so you've got to somehow, not necessarily compete against fresh specifically, but at the same, dollars, at the same time, if he's got $50 to spend on a hoodie, <laughs> He's going to spend it with what he's already comfortable with. So you might have to like start that up with offering something, with maybe some sort of promo, to get, just to get them to buy the first time, uh, and then loyalty will come on the repeat orders. There's, um, I don't remember who I was listening to, and I feel like it was a podcast or something about a restaurant industry, and uh, the statistic was something to the effect of if you can get a, if somebody to visit your restaurant three or four times the odds of them returning for the fifth time is like 75%. Like if you get them to come back three times, they're yours, unless they show up the sixth time and there's a bug in the food or something, right? But it's really hard to get them to come back after the first time. Everybody's willing to, to try something once. Like when a new restaurant opens in Regina, everybody wants to try that once. And then three years later, a lot of those restaurants go out of business. So the trick is to get them to come back a second time. So what they suggested was, have two different colors of napkins so that your servers know when they, if it's somebody's first time there, hey, it's our first time here, we're just checking out the restaurant, perfect, set the table, put some sort of marker on the table that they know it's their first time. So at the end of the meal, the owner, the manager, somebody can come over and give them a handwritten business card that says, hey, why don't you come back next time, we'll give you 50% off your second plate or whatever. Buy one, get one half off. Uh, if everything went great, then that person's got plenty of reason to come back a second time now because they've got a, like a financial incentive to do so. So they come back in, you got them twice now, so the odds of them coming back a third time are 50%. They give their buy one, get one half off coupon. You're still covering your costs at that point. Um, and at the end of that meal, you know, because there's a mark on the table again that they've been there twice now. So you come out again at the end of that one. Would you like a dessert? Not today, well why don't you come back next time, I'll give you a free apple pie in the house next time you come. Get them back in a third time. This now costs, what's an apple, slice of apple pie? Your cost now is like a buck. You sell them for six bucks probably. So your actual loss on that is a dollar, but you get them to come back a third time and now you've got them, <coughs> right? So something like that could help. Um, it's Gary Vee. Is it Gary Vee? Okay, he was interviewing somebody from yeah. the restaurant industry, but it was a, maybe it was a Gary Vee podcast. So something like that, you need to get those return customers. You don't need to sell things once, you need to sell things like two or three times before somebody will start to gain some loyalty towards you. Um, Probably a lot of your business is going to buy things once and then not again. You need to give them a reason to come back. And so things like that can help. I know I've bought things from, um, oh, what, like Tentree. When you buy a Tentree shirt or something, you always, you get like a little emblem tag, whatever it gives you. There's like a little token there and it's just like, it just makes you feel a little bit more that you're part of a brand or you're part of something that's going on. Of course, they have their whole like plant tentries for everything sold, so that gives you some incentive. It's not just the shirt. You feel, you feel like you're helping the world by buying their clothes. Like stuff like that can really help. So I know I bought like not bought. I was given a couple like Yeti cooler like mugs, thermoses, whatever. They always come with stickers or 
different little badges and stuff that make, make you feel like they're a strong brand that you want to be associated with. And it's like, oh, I'll put that sticker on my window. Like that's, that's exactly what they want. So things like that can help. Trinkets, people love trinkets. Do you still have another question? Um, no, I think I'm good. You're good now? Thank you. Okay. Any other questions? Any other questions? I know you all have them. Is everybody doing t-shirts? Like They're it's just yeah, so oh. So they have the same product, and it's a matter of like trying to see who can most successfully. They're, so they're cooperatively making the same product. So like we have like these guys are like marketing. Oh, I see. Production group. I see. Uh, finance. finance and human resources department. Gotcha. We kind of put together a pseudo corporation. Gotcha. In, in it, so. Okay. So yeah, so they're actually learning how to print. T-shirts, cool. screen and stuff right in here. Different things like that. Cool. Yeah, if you look at a lot of influencer stuff on Instagram, what a lot of the brands are doing is they're going to these influencers and they're offering the influencer something, like we'll give you whatever, an outfit for yourself to use and we'll give you a promo code to share with your audience. So that's giving value not only to the to the influencer themselves, but also giving value to the audience. Now that, now that person gets to go on there and be like, hey, heads up, check out this new outfit I got, I love it. If you want something like this, go to Ramon.com and use code this, whatever, and you'll get 20% off. So the nice thing about that is that you're you're already you're kind of leapfrogging the loyalty thing because you don't even have to have people that uh, have bought your product numerous times if somebody that they admire is already promoting the product. Like you skip the first three steps to brand loyalty. I've literally bought shoes from Gary Vaynerchuk because. I like Gary Vaynerchuk, like I follow him. I've never bought K-Swiss shoes in my life. But I did that time because it was being promoted by somebody that I admired. So, and then, it, and then right away I was loyal to it. They released a second pair, it was like, boom, how do I get these shoes? So K-Swiss aligned themselves with Gary Vaynerchuk, which brought them a ton of sales. So people buy Air Jordan shoes because of Michael Jordan, not because of Nike, right? Like Air Jordan, the brand of shoes is the number two brand of shoes in the entire world. They're ahead of, like that brand alone is ahead of Adidas. Nike's the only one above them. So Nike has the two. Is it Nike? And it's Nike. I read that book too and they like they told you exactly how to say it and then I can still revert back to my old ways. But then, I think it's just Nike. No. See, I don't know. We have to re-listen to that. But the top two brands are owned by one company. Like their little spin-off brand is, is bigger than all their competitors. It's crazy. So. Well, what are some, like, who are people that you guys follow? Like celebrities or Instagrammers or whatever? Jeffrey. There's zero chance I'm gonna know who they are probably, but. Jeffree Star? Jeffree Star? Yeah. Okay, so I have no idea who Jeffree Star is, but. If Jeffree Star was to wear your shirt tomorrow, they would probably already immediately be more <coughs> interested. Is that a brand or a person? If you somehow got your shirt onto Jeffree Star, they would be like infinitely more likely to buy your shirt as a result of that, and you never sold them anything, so you've already got some instant loyalty that way. 
and it might not cost you anything other than a shirt. So. The finance and operations people have their shit figured right out, hey? No questions. <laughs> what do you do, Alaska, because they're being quiet, and I know they have to out. What do you do to, when you're even in your lumber industry on how to track your inventory and keep track of what you have and keep organized that? It's the bane of my existence. <laughs> it's like... Anyway, the, the, in, the typical industry way of attacking that is every lumberyard basically does an inventory twice a year, kind of at the start of the season and the end of the season, and it's literally going out and counting things. So if you've got it, like everybody should have, and ours is less reliable than we would like it to be, but <coughs> that same accounting program should be tracking your inventory as well. So if you have 100 or something and you sell 10 of them, but you can see in the computer that you're at 90 now, and then that 90 is multiplied against how much that thing's worth to know how much inventory you have of that product. Uh, but it comes down to counting things because a lot of things can happen in our industry. You could somebody could order a hundred deck boards and maybe the guys miscount and they accidentally send out 101 or they send out 99 or whatever. Right? There might be a little mistake there, or maybe they're loading a hundred and they drop one and it and it wrecks it, and now that one can't be sold anymore and they just throw it back in the pile. But it's not actually sellable inventory anymore, so you need to take that out of your inventory. So it's like it's a it's a big thing for managing inventory on something where we carry, I don't even know what, like I don't know what this number is, but we probably have a couple thousand SKUs, right? We carry um, on the ground, in stock, we carry 32 colors of composite decking. And so each one of those colors comes in three lengths, and each one of those colors has two, like one or two fascia boards, like the board that goes on the side of the deck. So one color of decking might be six SKUs, um, most of them are six SKUs. Uh, so times that, so that's, a, that's 200 SKUs and just, just composite decking, I've got 200 inventory SKUs to keep track of. And then we carry, I don't know, call it 30 different sizes of lumber. Probably more like 50 different sizes of lumber. So that's another 50 on there. And then we carry, carry 100 different sizes of screws and stuff. Like we're literally dealing with thousands of SKUs of things we need to keep track of. So. It's a matter of kind of like, at the end of the season when things get slow, you just kind of shut things down for a day and people go out and they manually count and then you go back to your computer and it's like, computer says I have 47, I have 20. What the hell's going on here? Adjust, like try to figure out where that would happen to it, but sometimes it's just a matter of adjusting things. Um, so it's tricky. And also sometimes you order things. Sometimes you order 100 deck boards and 75 show up. So sometimes there's errors on the shipping side of things too. So it's like it's a daily thing to kind of track inventory. A little bit easier if you're selling like 10 different t-shirts because that's pretty easy. In 10 minutes you can go and count all your t-shirts and make sure it's right. So the scale of your operation depends on how much of a chore that is. But. We had one guy, one employee last year who was a little bit too overzealous on making sure we had exactly what we needed. And so he would take it upon himself to, like we would sell a box of screws, 350 screws in a box. And they're always taped shut, but sometimes we'll cut the tape so we can show a customer like, hey, this screw color matches the board you're about to buy really well, and they want to see it. So we'll cut the tape, we'll take a screw out and show them, put the screw back, put it down. But he thought if the, if the tape was cut, that means that there's a chance that there's not 350 screws in that box anymore, so he should count them. <laughs> so we caught him on numerous times, sitting at a desk in the back with 350 screws spilled out. <laughs> Taking like an hour to count 350 screws. And I finally had to have a conversation with him, and I was like, 
buddy. <laughs> I could literally give that box of screws away for free, and it would cost me less money than paying you for an hour to count them. Like, I make $7 on that box, you make $15 an hour, I'm out. I might as well just give them away. <laughs> like, so, and then when he was done, he was a summer student. So he was done at uh, September, and like two months later, we had like on the shelf, we had a bunch of screws, and about the seventh box back, we'd finally worked our way through and sold some of them, and all of a sudden this box of screws showed up, has a sticky note on it. It's like 74 screws, not 75, written on the box that he put back on the shelf. And I was just like, this guy's haunting me now. <laughs> He's been gone for two months, and I'm getting signs from him. <laughs> so. Uh, what was another good question? Oh, this is a good one. We'll be asking questions while they gone quiet. Uh, as an entrepreneur, what's work, home, family life like? Oh boy. So it depends on. <laughs> I had this conversation with my wife this morning. I'm like, can I start going to work at 6:30 next week? Uh, so year one and two, it was terrible. Like we were just getting off the ground, so we were working from. You know, call it, we'd roll in at six or seven in the morning, and sometimes we wouldn't get home till one or two in the morning. And we'd be out there in the yard in pitch black with a forklift and a light trying to move stuff around or pick an order for the next day because at that time it was just me and Wade, or me and Wade and <coughs> one yard guy maybe. So we were doing a lot of stuff ourselves. Um, obviously, your family is not pumped about that, but you're not being around that much. But as time's gone on and we've been able to, you know, kind of uh, allocate our the things we need to do to people or hire people to handle certain things, our load is less. I don't know if I'd say I feel like I'm any less busy. I'm just doing different things now or able to pay more attention. But I'm able to keep a little bit more of a consistent schedule now. So I come to work in the morning. I usually leave by 5, 5.30, and I'm home by 6. So that's, a, that's not bad. Now, that said, like two nights ago, I also spent time with the family, and at 9 o'clock, opened my laptop back up and sat there till midnight doing estimates, and then the next day again. But... Uh, the thing about being an entrepreneur and running your own business is that you'll never finish your to-do list, ever. There's no such thing as being caught up. You're always gonna have 100 things in there. Because even, even if you manage to do all 100 of them, you could add 10 more on there if you had the time to do things, right? Um, so it's about being cognizant of it and making time for your family because you can't have them just be, you can't give them only the time that you have left over because you'll never have any left over. So I've made a pretty considered effort to be like home by six, spend time with the family until everybody goes to bed, and then if I need to do more work, I can do it then. All right, well, I guess that's...